Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Dear Ambassador, dear board members, dear faculty, dear students, dear guests, Welcome to our second event on our event series, Examining Populism, which I organized together with Christian Flaxland. Today, our guest is Philip Mano, who will present his book on the political economy of populism. Philip Mano is professor of comparative political economy at the University of Bremen. Previously, he held position at the universities in Constance and Heidelberg, as well at the Sciences Po in Paris and the Max Planck in Cologne. He's not only, he's a remarkably broad scholar. He has not only contributed significantly to the literatures on political economy, the welfare state analysis, the literature on parliaments and electoral system, but he has also published a number of books to the broader audience, for instance, on minor matters, the minor matters of democracies, Um, The Visual Aspects of Democracy, that's a book called In the Shadow of the King. And also this book is meant for the broader audience, and it has the title of the talk today, The Political Economy of Populism. And with this, I would like to hand over the stage to Philip Mano. Thank you. Yeah, um, good evening, everybody. Uh, thanks a lot, Hannah, for, for these nice words. Um, thanks a lot for the invitation. Um, yeah, so uh, the topic is clear. It's a book that appeared uh, last November, unfortunately in German only. Uh, at the moment, the question is whether it will be translated. Um, but uh, so, so maybe this is also an opportunity to, uh, to give those of you who will not be able to read the German book uh, a glimpse of the argument which is in there. Okay, so uh, political economy of populism. Um, I will start with three observations. And um, I think um, that... Um, a convincing theory of populism should be able to provide answers to to the question which come out of these uh, to the questions which come out out of these observation. The first observation is that if we, at least when I started looking at populism, may, maybe I should put it that way, um, I was I, I, I f- thought it's a striking pattern that we have a north-south variance in Europe. That has changed recently, and we, we, be, we will be able to talk about that. Um, but uh, when, I f- when I first uh, stumbled ac- across that, I think it was a, a quite clear pattern that left populism was really something which you saw in the south. So Movimento, which I would count as left populism, Podemos, Syriza, La France Insoumise, And the further up north you go in Europe, the more right-wing populist it gets. So what I did here, uh, again, very on a very basic, simple, brutal econometric uh, way, I just um, uh, took the, the positions of these parties on a left-right scale, which is usually going from zero or one extreme left 
to 10 extreme right, and then I just multiplied that with the, with the vote share in the last parliamentary election. So very, very down to earth. This is all normalized, so it's not anymore going from, um, from 1 to 10, but it's going from minus 5 to plus 5. So that here we have, so to speak, the left-wing populists, and here we have the right-wing populists. And if we have in countries like in France and, and also in, in Italy, uh, more recently, uh, both of these parties, even in, both in government in Italy, then I just subtracted the one value from the other. So very, very down-to-earth. So, but, but I think what, at least what this, I think, can visualize, uh, visualize is um, exactly one pattern which, which a good theory of populism should be able to explain. Um, so this is the first observation. The second observation is uh, rather related to the German case. So if we take the last, um, the last parliamentary election, the German one, September 2017, and we have the left panel here, it's the AfD vote share. Uh, on, on the county level, um, and if we have any measure of deprivation, whatever you take, long-term unemployment, um, uh, share of households on, on social assistance, share of, women, of mothers below 18, whatever, what we here took is a, is a composite index of relative deprivation, which also takes account for things like uh, average distance to the next hospital, uh, then we don't really see a correlation between deprivation and vote for the AfD. So the whole German discussion, or most of the German discussion, is really one about uh, East and West. But if we look closely, there is a second pattern hidden here, uh, namely again a North-South pattern within the German case which is not really, I think, not really nicely explained by all, all these approaches say, okay, these are the losers of modernization, these are the losers of globalization, these are the marginalized, these are the forgotten, as, as Trump would say, and they protest. Because both in the East and in the West, we have the, strong, the AfD strongholds both in the South. Uh, here, of course, it's much more... Um, much, much stronger, much more visible, but again, uh, here Baden-Württemberg, Bavaria uh, are relatively, uh, within the western part of Germany, um, uh, those, those regions where the AfD was especially successful. And both Saxony and ba Bavaria and Baden-Württemberg are, of course, not the regions which are somehow detached, which, which are in deep economic troubles, uh, and, uh, which, which, which lose, lost out by globalization, and so on. And so quite to the contrary, here we have the core of, of the German export-led growth model, both in the East. So both in the, the south of the East and the south of the West, we have uh, the strongholds of uh, the AfD. Uh, if you might recall the last parliamentary election in the state of Baden-Württemberg, where the AfD passed, uh, surpassed the, the Social Democrats by two percentage points. So I think this is a second kind of pattern which, which calls for explanation and which a good theory of populism should be able to explain, and then the last one is again, so uh, somehow I seem to be obsessed by north-south variants. Um, uh, as you will see, uh, the further we go on in the talk, I will also talk about east-west 
Um, but here again, we see this uh, from the last parliamentary election in the Italian case in March uh, 2018, last year, where the, the, the previously regional party Lega, Lega Nord, uh, skipped the, the Nord in its name and it turned into a, a full-blown right-wing populist party. But still, we saw or we see a, um, a pattern where Movimento uh, is strong in the South and Lega is strong in the North. So these are the three, so these are kind of explanations. Um, and, and of course, there's also a kind of, so this is geographical variance. Of course, we also have temporal variance in the sense that we all know that, that, that the topic as such became so relevant because, because of the, the, the upsurge in, in the vote shares of populist parties. So, so then, but, but then that really means a good theory of populism should be able to, to give answers to the question, why now and why here? So this is from a recent paper by Guizot at Alita. So my argument um, basically says uh, that in order to make sense out of these um, patterns, both geographically but also temporal, uh, we should, um, I, that's at least my, my proposition, my proposal, we should understand um, populism, at, at least the, the recent uh, rise in, the, in populism, as a reaction to, to crises, economic crises, um, and I have three in mind. Um, obviously, the financial crisis which turned um, in Europe into the euro crisis. So starting in 2008 as a financial crisis, I don't have to tell you this, uh, turning into the euro crisis in 2010 following the second crisis, the refugee crisis 2015 following. And I will also talk about the transformation crisis in Central Eastern Europe um, 1990 following. So the talk uh, is um, yeah, structured like this. I will briefly talk about um, what is out there as explanatory ex approaches. I will very briefly say why I am not completely convinced and not, not satisfied by, by these approaches. I will then very briefly say what, what is my own explanatory approach and then I will give you uh, two short empirical, um, yeah, empirical examples of support for 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 the kind of expectations which which come out of my my explanatory framework. So um, let's st start a little bit with um, yeah with theory. Um, so what we so th this is a very very vibrant. Um, uh, uh, debate. Um, it's uh, it's hard to 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 keep track of all the contributions which come out on, on most only for, for, uh, yeah on, on an almost a daily basis. But I think with some uh, courage for for summarizing and and for for um, yeah for abstracting away from all the, the little nuances. I think we can say, okay, we have mainly three approaches. The first one, um, I would link to names like Jan Werner Müller, but also Kurt Müller uh, or Revier Kaltwasser, which, which very much stress um, the kind of rhetoric and the kind of antagonism uh, between 
the the populists and an elite and and so so Kasmuda um, is saying okay we have here this very anti-establishment uh, rhetoric we against them uh, the the true people or the pure people against this uh, neoliberal uh, cosmopolitan political uh, elite which which has lost track they out of out of touch elites um, so this is one element so very antagonistic um, uh, rhetoric anti-elite, but then also nativism, so the pure people, which can both have a left-wing and, and right-wing connotations, uh, um, and, and then also anti-pluralism. Since the, since the people for which these um, populist uh, persons claim to, to speak is somehow understood as a kind of homogeneous ent entity, there is always this, um, yeah, this notion of, of, of not, really, uh, not really being accepting modern pluralist society with all its um, divisions and all its struggles, so to speak. So this is all fine, um, but I think um, um, it, it, it really, um, at least for what I'm interested in, is, is really unsatisfactory. So uh, Kasmude is saying, okay, populism is a thin ideology. It can sometimes find expression on the left. It can sometimes find expression on the right. For me, then, uh, the, the relevant question is, yes, yeah, so, but, but when and where and why does it somehow or some, sometimes appear on the right and sometimes on the left? So simply saying it's a thin, thin ideology, which sometimes has, so to speak, the, the, as a host ideology, a right-wing ideology emphasizing nation or even sometimes race or and the other one class. Um, uh, I, I would say, okay, but then the relevant questions only start because the question is why do we see sometimes the emergence of a kind of left-wing populism and sometimes a right-wing populism and it's and it really abstracts away from 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 the from the substantive issues it seems to be more interested um, uh, in, in in the consequences but not really in the causes and it gives us really no answer to the question why we why we see this variance but but the variance is quite obvious i think so the second approach has a, has a, a little bit longer history, uh, and, and I shortly alluded to that already. So this is the traditional modernization loser, globalization loser, and so on uh, explanation, which people like Hans-Georg Betz already uh, formulated in the 1990s when we saw a first wave of, of populist uh, success. Um, so there, here, there mainly the, the 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 contention is to say, okay, so that that, that is mainly a reaction to well to, to to modern life in a way, but also to structural change, deindustrialization, uh, transition to the knowledge or service economy, and and those who who lose out in this uh, in, in this in this game, uh, they they turn to um, they turn turn to to populist protest. So, and if you think at the white working class, uh, I don't know, at the, in the U.S. American Rust Belt, um, confronted with the China shock since 2001, one would one would think, yes, this is something like that is is meant by that. Um, so, um, the problem I think with that approach is. Simply an empirical, as as a, as a proposition, it's highly plausible that this plays a role. But as as I showed you already, both for for the Italian map and the German map, 
uh, both the, the northern Italian regions, Emilia Romana, uh, and, and, and then also the, north, uh, the southern German regions, are not the regions which lost out by globalization, quite to the contrary. Uh, they, 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 these, these are the, the, these are the, the, the export-oriented, this uh, highly productive, highly competitive uh, uh, regions. And so if we, as I just showed you, if we try to explain populism, populism with, with our traditional um, indicators of being somebody who lo had lost uh, in, in the modernization, a process or on the globalization process or whatever, then usually these uh, these uh, factors do not really um, work well. So unemployment and so and so on. So all our all our measurements of 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 having lost of being precariously employed and so on. They, they in in many instances they don't work. In some instances, obviously maybe they do, but obviously as a, as a general explanation that really doesn't doesn't work. So it can be that it's a somewhere and sometimes. Through true theory, but obviously it's not a theory which explains us the whole range of uh, the phenomena. The third one, and uh, that now it gets a little bit complicated, and I'm, I'm not sure uh, how how deep I should delve into that issue. Um, a third explanation linked to names like Hans Peter Krisi, uh, but also Hoge Marx um, uh, and, and, and partly Ingelhard Norris and so on, they more or less stress that we see a new divide um, which is increasingly dominating um, the old divide between a socioeconomic left and a socioeconomic right. Now we, now we see a new cleavage line, and there are many ways of, of, of labeling that cleavage lines in the literature. As you can imagine, each, each scholar wants to have his own label invented for that. So we have integrationist versus demarcationist, cosmopolitans versus communitarians, uh, tan versus gal, uh, traditional authoritarian nationalist versus green alternative libertarian. So, but but the, the the general thrust of that literature is saying, okay, what we see here is um, we see a, a new, mainly socio-cultural cleavage line, more more and more dominating the old socio-economic cleavage line, where and and and, th and this is really on the on the, more on values and on cultural competition and and, and, and on questions of belonging. Uh, it's the somewheres against the anywheres. Um, uh, so and the, so and here we have a globalized elite jetting around, feeling comfortable at home everywhere, and then we have people who, who are regionally oriented and and, 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 and and nostalgic about the welfare state and so on and so on and, and the nation state. Um, again, I think this 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 doesn't really work. So it's in a way it's a kind of backlash explanation. So we saw. A massive value change since the late 60s, early 70s, and now what we see is now a cultural backlash against Europeanization, against uh, international trade treaties, um, against migration, because this is understood as being an instance of cultural competition. Um, but again, I would say that that, that all sounds very plausible, but it, it, it doesn't really helps us uh, explaining um, uh, the geographical pattern. So for instance, if we take the Italian case, we would have to make an argument that the kind of social change in this country was completely divided geographically and that the, that the North took a took, took 
completely different path than the South. Uh, in, within the European picture, we would have to argue that the kind of globalization and modernization skeptics are, are living in the North of Europe and, 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 and not in the South of Europe. Uh, if, it's, if, if, it, if this argument is, is linked to the kind of work logics, since we still see that certain socioeconomic groups are rather buying into the kind of liberal open attitudes and other groups are rather buying into the more closed um, national oriented uh, uh, attitudes, then we still would need to explain. So, and, and, and if that's the explanation why, for instance, workers, blue collar workers, manufacturing workers, seem to be overrepresented among populist voters, we would still need to explain why, for instance, a Swedish voter then votes Sweden Democrats, uh, but, but a Spanish worker uh, either doesn't vote right-wing populist or then even left-wing Podemos. In many of these accounts, uh, so th this has been formulated already also since the early 2000s, uh, often this southern Europe hasn't, wasn't part of the picture at all. So it, I think it's also a little bit, deep, there is a certain selection bias also in that theory because for a very long time, the southern European cases where we usually don't see, right, or for a long time haven't seen uh, right-wing populism was not part of the sample uh, within these studies who, who, who developed this, uh, this kind of theory about uh, the, the new cultural or socio-cultural socio, socio uh, cleavage line. So my, my, my proposal or my explanatory um, yeah, suggestion is, uh, and, and this is to a certain extent uh, in, in influenced and inspired by, by a short piece by Danny Roderick uh, who, who, that was around in 2017 got published in 2018, is to say, okay, we should uh, understand populism uh, as a protest against globalization. So in, in, in its core, in its essence, it's, it's an economically driven phenomenon. And we should then distinguish at least two instances of globalization. And the one is what we usually mean when we say globalization, and that's the movement of capital and goods across borders. Uh, but then we have a second um, uh, 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 globalization phenomenon, and that's uh, the, the movement of persons across borders, i.e. migration. And then the very, in a way, static, but I think very helpful uh, prediction would be whenever, whenever the globalization shock is felt, um, via, um, via this first instance of globalization, movement of goods and capital, then we, we rather would expect to see a left-wing populist response whenever the globalization shock is experienced in the second, um, uh, in the second form as the movement of persons across borders, we will see a right-wing populist um, uh, response and and the, in a way the, the the reason for that is relatively trivial because migration critique is something which the left cannot deliver but the right is very um, uh, willing to deliver capitalism critique is something which the left is very willing to deliver but the right usually not so how does this or how would that explain uh, the geographical um, pattern 
So if we look at the European case, uh, the first thing is to say, and that, that's something which became completely obvious in the euro crisis, in Europe we have at least two completely distinct political economies, a northern one and a southern one. The northern one is, has absolutely no problem with the move, free movement of capital and goods. Completely to the contrary, that's its rationality. That's its essence. So that's its... Uh, that's its um, uh, Quintessence, if you want. So the 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 German economy, but also the Belgium, the Dutch, the Scandinavians, Switzerland, Austria. These are export-oriented open economies. They rest on on restrictive monetary policy, wage moderation, and so on and so on. So I, I don't have to develop this. Most of you are familiar with that literature. I think there are varieties of, of of capitalism literature, but also you know Rhenish capitalism, uh, and and so on. So so there, there are many variants of, of, of this argument, but it's very clear that the northern economy um, has absolutely no, no problem with this first instance of globalization and also in the euro crisis, of course, had no problem with that. Um, what, uh, one of the reasons why it doesn't have a problem with that is a, is a very generous welfare state. And that's, again, a, a theory which Danny Roderick was quite um, uh, pivotal in de developing, but it also goes back to people like Peter Katzenstein, who already in the 80s said, okay, what we see here, we, we see the strange combination of very competitive, very open economies, but very generous welfare states. And, and, and this is not by chance, and this is not contradictory. Now the argument is no, this, is, this, is, this, is, this has an institutional logic, because the welfare state is really uh, managed to compensate for the risk of openness. And this, this, this delivers the kind of political majority you need for, to have, for having an open economy. So it compensates risks of, of, of globalization, so to speak. So, but then the argument would be, yes, uh, that, but this makes it vulnerable for the second dimension of globalization meant by Roderick because migration. If you have a very generous welfare state, migration will be a problem. Um, the, the southern picture is just the, the other way around. Um, we, we know that, yes, that the southern economies, they have generous welfare states, but since they don't have any compens compensatory function, they, they, are rather, they are fragmented, they are not very accessible, they are very, very insider-oriented in the sense of certain clientele which, which, um, uh, which, which benefit from, from the entitlements. For instance, if, 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 if a very, very large share of the welfare state is really put into pensions, uh, this is nothing which is uh, anyhow uh, vulnerable vis-a-vis -vis, uh, migration. And if many of these countries have no basic social assistance, this is also something which makes them uh, invulnerable. But as we knew, at, at least since the euro crisis, uh, and, and, and as we learned uh, during the euro crisis, these countries are very vulnerable through by, by the, the, the sudden stop, uh, the sudden um, uh, movement of capital, so to speak. So here, one would say, okay, here we get a problem with the first instance of globalization that, that, that triggers a left-wing populist response. Here we get an, a problem with the second uh, uh, dimension of globalization, and then we get a right-wing populist response. Now... Now, as I said, uh, I'm not only obsessed with North-South, but sometimes also with East-West. So the question is, how, do, how does the West and the East come into play? And here I would say, um, 
and and one of that might be quite familiar the other might be quite um, surprising but but here my prediction would be to say okay if we take the anglo-saxon economy and 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 the, and the british one is of course an, an, an ideal type of that but it partly would also apply to the us then we don't have generous welfare states we have um, uh, um, very liberalized um, uh, labor markets but usually uh, uh, this this really presupposes uh, control of migration too, um, especially um, since we then don't get migration into the welfare state, but migration into the labor market. This is interesting in a sense, I think, because then different groups are affected, um, and we we would then see also. So that, that would be my my prediction, so to speak. We would also see protests against migration, but by different socioeconomic groups. And that's basically the story of the Brexit. In a way, it's also the story of Trump and the wall. Um, uh, so, th so that's, I think, the more familiar part. The less familiar part is what is with the East. So in a way, East and West were, of course, um, how do you say, in inter intertangled in the sense that much of the Brexit reaction obviously came as a, as a response um, to, the, to the very early opening of the British labor market to the, to the new, new entrant countries, to the accession, uh, accession countries, the European after 2004 and 2007 with the, with the, with the um, uh, membership of then Bulgaria and Roma uh, Romania. So in a way, these are, these are all cases which are linked. So we have a Europeanization dimension of populism. So we all also see the interaction between the northern right-wing populism being obsessed about the fiscal in, in, in undiscipline of the south and the southern left-wing populism being obsessed with the, uh, or being annoyed by the austerity obsession of the north. So we see, so we see all the time we see interaction effects in this European Union which we also will then see in three weeks uh, or four weeks from, from now when the European elections will take uh, play. Um, but we also, of course, have the economic interaction between the migration, which mainly came from the Eastern European countries um, and went to the, those Western countries which opened early, especially Britain. So, but then the question is, what is about the East? And here I would say, okay, if they really don't have problem with migration because they don't receive any, but they uh, they send many, so to speak. They, but then if, 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 if the populists are in a way still uh, organizing uh, the losers uh, of, the, of the economic openness, um, uh, so then we would rather expect left-wing populism in Eastern Europe. That would be the prediction. And you would probably guess, oh, this guy is completely wrong, as we know. Um, Fidesz, Orban, um, Kaczynski, etc. But uh, in a minute, I will say yes. We we see left-wing populism in Eastern Europe as as expected. So uh, I think I have to speed up a little bit. Uh, so the, the explanatory scheme coming from that would say okay, we have different variants of um, of uh, of populism, and we have different carrier groups, if you want. So here, if, if migration is not a problem, we should see uh, the response of uh, a, a left response, so to speak. If, if, if free trade and the free movement of capital and goods is a problem, here we would, 
Here we would expect a right-wing populism if migration is a problem, but not the free, the free market principle, so to speak. Uh, but we would a little bit, um, we, uh, we would expect different carrier groups, so to speak, because here this refugees and this is labor migration mainly. As we know, Britain was not uh, really uh, affected by the refugee crisis, mainly out of geographic reasons, so to speak. Okay, so uh, uh, as I said, I have to speed up a little bit. So fir first making plausible that this is an interesting that this is an interesting differentiation between, so to speak, two forms of migration, what refugees and, and labor migration, and, and that this is systematically varying with different political economies. That's just just a kind of plausibility check that this that I, that is not made up by me, but this is indeed what we see. So uh, if we take here on the left, left panel um, a measurement of welfare generosity and then a measurement of, 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 of how much this country, uh, uh, so to speak, was affected by the refugee crisis, we see a strong, rela relatively strong relation and we see the relation that we would expect. It's the Scandinavian countries and it's, and it's the continental countries much less the uh, Anglo-Saxon or the Southern European. It's a little bit, it's quite, quite different if we take the relationship between how regulated the labor market is and the intensity of labor migration, which is then much bigger in the, in the, liberal, uh, well, in the liberal economies, i.e. the, the Anglo-Saxon ones, um, uh, or in the where, where we have informal labor markets. Of course, these are usually highly regulated, but we have a lot of uh, informal informal labor markets. So this is just to say, okay, I'm not completely off uh, empirically. Uh, so there is this, there is a correlation. Now, very very quick to the to the empirical evidence. First, I have two mainly two uh, two sources. I have to say, this is since since it's really mainly the, the book was mainly meant really for a broader audience. It appeared with with Zurkamp, and and I think the average Zurkamp reader would not be able to digest more than one regression table per chapter. I would say, so I try to to, to keep it down. The the level of economic sophistication is not very high. I, I fully admit that, um, but I, I have mainly two uh, sources. Sorry, um, the one is simply Eurobarometer, and I simply use this for 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 asking what is the perception of of the problems in these countries. And then I have really then for inference statistics, I, I took the European Social Survey and, and the seven and eight wave um, in order for, for also capturing the 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 the, the impact of the uh, refugee crisis. But I, I just reran the analysis analysis now also with with the first to eight wave, so with the complete data set, and I, I just got the same results. So my dependent variable is whether somebody voted for a populist party, or whether he or she declared to be close to that party. Again, the results are uh, robust, uh, whenever, which, whichever dependent variable you take. And then I was interested, are these rather insiders? Are these rather outsiders? I have different operationalizations of that. Uh, and then I look at other things uh, with respect to the employment situation. Are they, are, they, are they employed in the private sector? Are they employed in the public sector? Which I, I think has a strong information about their um, unemployment risk, so to speak. And then a, a, a number of, of controls, say age, sex, uh, income, education, and so on and so on. 
So the, the first um, piece of evidence, I think, which I, I, I already found interesting is to say, okay, migration is perceived as a problem in the north. Interestingly, both, so Southern Europe doesn't perceive that as a problem. So this is from 2015, so it's from, from, the, from the peak of the refugee crisis to the, at, the, at that moment when I run the analysis to the last Eurobarometer, um, both Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, not really a problem. Northern Europe, yes, big problem. So and on a trivial level, you would say, okay, if, if, some, if, if somebody, something is perceived as a problem, then, then, then this already should have an explanatory. The reverse is here that you see, okay, who, who is really concerned with the economic situation, whether it is unemployment or general economic situation is, is, is completely irrelevant, uh, then, then you get a, a kind of reversed picture, except that in Eastern Europe, uh, the economic situation is not so, was not so, so, so perceived as so drastic. So now, if you, if you really do a more inference statistic analysis, I think, so, and, and I simply split that up into north, and that means Central Europe plus Scandinavia, south, so that means really Italy, Greece, Portugal, Spain, or then Eastern Europe, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, um, uh, Slovakia, Slovenia, um, Poland, and um, Hungary. I think what the most striking finding is the, the very same categories that I defined being on regular employment, working more than 30 hours, being on a contract, explain just exactly the, the politically the complete different behavior. So these are the, rather the insiders in the north voting right, rather the insiders in the left voting left. So it's, as, by definition, these are the same groups. Um, here in the public sector, that's what we would expect. So if you are in a public sector employed in, in, in Northern Europe or continental Europe, you wouldn't vote for the right-wing populist. But you, if you are employed in the public sector in the South, you would vote for left-wing populist parties, which is in the, the, that, that, that confirms the expectation. In a way, um, we would say, okay, this is maybe not so confirming because here we have right-wing populism. As I said, we would expect left-wing populism if if migration is not really a problem, if it's rather those who have broken biographies due to the transformation crisis and so on and so on, um, and, and rather those, we would then also rather see this as outsiders, people living on a countryside, being in the formerly employed in the agricultural sector, maybe in the heavy industry sector, all which were wiped out by Europeanization, so to speak. So first, in, in, in the first instance, this is, not, this is not a plausible setting, especially since I said, okay, what we, what we expect in the East is right-wing populism. So, was it wrong? No, I don't think this was wrong. Um, in a sense, um, uh, we should take care of the fact that the political space in Eastern Europe is inverted. Um, and we can talk about the reasons why this is the case, but this is here the West, where when you are on the socio-economic left-right dimension, when you are right, then you are also on the socio-cultural dimension right. So you have, here is the ton categories for the traditional authoritarian nationalist, and here is the economic right. So this is our this is how our Western systems are structured. Many of the Eastern European countries have it, have it right just the other way around. So here we have the combination of being socioeconomically left 
pro-redistribution, pro-welfare state, pro-protectionism, pro-workers, so to speak, and having conservative sociocultural attitudes. So and then, the, then it's not so surprising that Fidesz and Pish, uh, which also, uh, they are not neoliberals, at least today, no, not anymore. So they, they have a kind of left-wing socioeconomic policy. So, but we usually perceive them as being right because they have all these things, you know, against Roma, against foreigners, against Muslim, against Europe, and so on and so on. But um, in a way, um, we... In a way, we see the blurring of left and right-wing populism because we have, of course, uh, also left-wing populism in Eastern Europe, um, Romanian social democrats, the mayor in uh, Slovakia. Um, but they share very much the same profile, namely uh, having a rather left standing on the socioeconomic dimension, uh, which is relevant for the, for, the, for the losers of the transformation and a very conservative stance on the social-cultural dimension. Um, very briefly on the German case, what we did here, I say we because not all the analysis was done by me alone, some is, uh, is joint work, uh, mainly with Hannah Schwander. Um, so here we didn't use surveys, but we used administrative data, namely from the 85,000 polling districts in Germany. We aggregated them to the municipal level, uh, I think in many respects this has an advantage over questionnaires. Of course, you have a kind of micro-logic problem or a kind of ecological fallacy problem in the sense that you, you don't have individual data, you have aggregated data, even if it's very disaggregated aggregated data. Um, um, but I think this has the advantages that it's much more reliable and, it's, uh, it, it, and, and you have a much, much higher uh, um, uh, number of observations so that the ecological fallacy problem is not so, is not so drastic, so to speak. Uh, and, 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 and people, yeah, you, you don't ask people to, what have you voted for and, and you have much better, in, in a way, much better uh, information about what the vote shares were and which kind of economic situation uh, was prevalent in the, in the, in the municipal uh, so, and if we look here, what comes quite clear out of the picture in the 2017 election, no, unemployment as an outsider variable doesn't explain anything. Uh, being low employed doesn't explain anything. Quite to the contrary, it does explain something. It is negatively correlated with, uh, with AfD vote share. And uh, something, insider va uh, uh, variables like being, being in manufacturing employed or being regularly employed have a positive effect. So it's rather the insiders, not the outsiders. And since here we have this very interesting finding that it's not actual unemployment in 2017, in the September month, um, which explains the AfD vote, which was low by any means in September 2017, but past the, the past unemployment in that, in that municipal uh, level, uh, which explained it very strongly, uh, I think, and, and this is especially an Eastern phenomenon here, uh, I think what we see here in the German case, and th this would also apply to much of the Scandinavian countries since they had a quite similar trajectory, it's the combination so it's the insiders, not the outsiders, but the insiders over the last 20 years have experienced quite dramatic status loss because a lot of, a lot of welfare reforms undermined their 
former protective, protect, protected status. In Germany, of course, the, the um, Agenda 2010 reforms, but in, in countries like Sweden and Denmark, make, make work pay reforms, social investment reforms, and so on. So they were all going in the same direction, going back away from insider protection, uh, going into social investment, and so on, so on. So it's the combination of insider loss, status loss, the experience of being exposed to risk, and then the combination with migration. And if, so, so, if we look at the first German election after the Agenda 2010, so both 2005 and then 2009, uh, 2005 where the PDS first managed to become a, a, a German-wide party by merging with the VSAG, um, but then in 2009 when, when it was clear that this is now a German-wide protest party, all of those people protesting against the agenda went to the went to the uh, to, to the, the Linke. Then in 2015, 2017, they all went back to the AfD because um, because of of that topic. So if we then match that this with with really with individual data like the German election study where people say what why they have voted as as they did, and if we look at the AfD voter. It's the combination of concerns about refugees and social justice, which is by far, by far most, the, the most important uh, issue, uh, both of that, the, the special combination. And in, in our view, that, that is explained by this special trajectory, so to speak. So um, thanks a lot for your attention. I will be very brief now on so much as the, simply, simply reiterating uh, what I said. I think there are maybe two um, two more broader out, out views, so to speak. First of all, I would really stress the economic side of the whole phenomenon. Of course, I'm not alone. Um, more recent contributions go into the same direction. I think that's very promising. I don't claim that I've solved the issue, but I think that's the way to go, I would say. And so the, the interface between the political economy the economic crises, and then party politics. I think that that gives us the explanation for, for what we are interested in. Thanks a lot. So thank you, Philip, for this uh, fascinating talk. Um, I have a number of questions, and I am also not obsessed, but interested in North-South uh, differences. So my questions, my first two questions are exactly about, I think, much about the South. So your argument is that a populism is not unrelated to policy content but closely sort of it has a policy dimension and that this specific dimension is then linked to sort of the specific problems that globalization poses to different political economies, right? So my first question um, is 
how do you account for countries that have both strong left and strong right-wing populist parties? So France would be an example, right? It has the tradition of both a strong right-wing populist party, the Front National, now uh, Rassemblement National, and from an ex-communist uh, milieu coming, uh, the La France Insoumise. But Italy would be the other good example where we have a populist government, both a left-wing populist and a right-wing populist party that have joined um, a populist coalition. That's the first comment or the first question. And the second one, and Italy is a good bridge for that. Um, so you make very strongly the argument that populism in Southern Europe takes the form of left-wing populism, right? It's protest against austerity. It's protest against the, the, sort of the outflow of, of capital that the crisis triggered and so on. Now, That seemed to be plausible when we when we look at sort of at the figure that you presented. But there are sort of two two caveats. One is that it seems to be changing. So the Liga is one of the, the explanations, but we also have a new populist, right-wing populist party in Spain, in Andalusia, Vox specifically. And then It also doesn't seem to be entirely true for sort of the entire period when we look at Greece, for instance, where we have the Golden Dawn. So it was, was interesting in how, how could you explain this with your framework, this development, this movement uh, of the political landscapes in Southern Europe? Yeah. Um, very fair point, or very fair points. Um, so maybe I start with Italy. Um, so it's, 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 as I said, when I started the talk, yes, we both have left and right. Um, but I would say that we have a right-wing populist party is, is, a, is a quite recent phenomenon. Okay, then you could say, what, what about Berlusconi? Uh, what about Forza Italia? Was that, was this, this, not, wasn't that the, the first instance of populism? Wasn't that, not to speak, so to speak, the, 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 the scheme which, which Trump followed 20 years later or something? So we already had a clown then, now, now we have again a clown. Um, well, so one can talk a lot about this, but uh, my first observation would be, okay, the Lega was traditionally was a really originalist party and only, only very recently uh, it, it developed into that right-wing populist party. I think, I think it's fair to say only since March last year or the, the electoral campaign. So in, in the way, like the Gysi quotation, which I, which I gave in the introduction, Uh, that that at least would also be have to be explained why so late why why so late um and of course the same applies to vox um now obviously we get the, the parliamentary election will be in 28th of april then we will have later very, um, only four four weeks later or three weeks later now four weeks we will have european election i think the prediction or the the, the polls are saying it's they are around 11 or 12 percent nationwide so so then we also so and and we we can go back to articles Two, from, from two, three years explaining us why right-wing populism has no chance in, in Spain. So explaining us to, that to us. Um, so in a way, uh, first of all, I would say, okay, uh, even if this is now changing, we would still need to say why it, why it comes so late. 
And then I would say, okay, um, if we take um, the traditional cultural backlash argument, that doesn't seem to me very very plausible for 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 explaining that. Um, so that 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 the reaction to 1969, 90, early 1970s to I don't know women liberalization, um, civil rights movements, the new social movements now now somehow that, that somehow the right uh, figured out also in southern Europe that they should be obsessed with that and, and that they should push that back. Uh, that, that that doesn't seem plausible to me. In the Italian case, I think there's a very, very straightforward social economic explanation for that. We know, so when we know that, that the European landscape is divided at least by two political economies, we know that Italy is also divided by two political economies. We have the South, very dependent on trans, government transfers. Um, and then we have the North, which is more similar to, to the North, so to, to the North of Europe. So we the, we have this all the small medium sized enterprises, family business, highly highly export oriented, high, so all the people working on regional economics uh, from Chuck Sable and and so on, they they have long written that that in the north the, the economies, and so in a way we have a straightforward economic explanation for the pattern we see. We now have a pan populist government in Rome, uh, the movement on the south, Lega on the north. Uh, the, the Lega is rather uh, representing this, also this business community. What they want is lower taxes. And for those who haven't paid taxes in the past, they want a kind of amnesty. Um, uh, and the, the South will wants, wants to have transfers. But the North doesn't want to pay taxes because they know the transfers go to the South. So what they do, they have a basic income for the South. That's the movimento uh, part of the story. Then they get uh, tax amnesty or tax reductions in the north. And so that's that's a perfect deal. And it has a straightforward socioeconomic explanation to it. Um, no no cultural backlash arguments involved. Um, so, and then maybe the, the, the other point about Golden Dawn, um, maybe also Anel, which is we have to sometimes sometimes to remember that Anel is a coalition partner of Syriza, so we have also there a kind of pan. Well, I don't know if, if, if Anel is a populist party, but we have a, a so from from initially far left to still far right coalition government, which is which is quite surprising, I think. Um, yes, again, I would say. Um, I, I wouldn't classify Anel as populist. Um, of course, we have extreme radical right parties in the South. We always had. We have neo. We had neo-fascists in Italy. We still have them. MSE and now Mussolini uh, uh, um, woman is running for the European Parliament. So we had Frankist parties in Spain, although they never, never really uh, passed the two percentage line. So. So we always had the, the extreme right in, 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 some, in some, how do you say, manifestations. But I think, and, and there I would, I think, go together with Kass Mutter and others, say, um, so we have a kind of, as we had anti-system parties on the left, communists, we also had anti-systems party on the, on the right, neo-fascists, Nazis. So, and I would say there is a difference, for instance, between the NPD and the AfD. People would probably say, no, it's, that's all braune Soße. But I would say, no, it's not true. Um, um, so, and, 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 if, and in that respect, I think it makes sense 
to differentiate really, and, and that's the reason I think why Carl Smoda invented this right, the radical populist right, because he wanted to draw a distinction also then radical populist left, if you want, between you know the old established anti-system parties, which really wanted a different system. They were not they were not okay with democracy. They wanted either the dictatorship of the proletariat or they wanted a kind of new, I don't know, kind of dictatorship from the right. So in that in that respect, I would say it still makes sense to draw here a line and say, no, this seems to be a new phenomenon. And, and 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 so we always also had yes we had radical parties of the right also in southern Europe no no question, but now we are talking really about Podemos about Movimento about Syriza as as, as big movements so to speak. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm I mean there's more more this question has to be discussed further. Um, but I go go now for another another comment in another direction and it's your criticism on the sort of the cultural focus or the, the sort of demand side explanations that focus on the cult on the relevance of cultural and value preferences, right? So and I think there are sort of two Two variants of that argument, which you had on the on the same heading. One is the a, moder, a modernized version of the loser of modernization theory, saying that these people feel economically threatened, but as a result of that, develop specific cultural preferences. And the other one is sort of unlinked to any economic. Um, Uh, explanation saying, well, it's just a cultural backlash to the 68 movement. And I think I share very much your skepticism towards the second one, the backlash theory. Um, but I wonder to what extent you perceive your own explanation to be sort of similarly structured or, or whether you could structure it similarly or, or marry to this kind of explanation saying that we have a specific economic development, now the form of globalization, how that uh, impacts the, the working of specific political economies. Specific carrier groups, as you call them, are affected in a specific way. And as a reaction, they develop value preferences, right? So how, how can you position yourself uh, or your argument within this sort of explanationary framework? Yeah, extremely complicated, um, and I don't. So, I, I, what is clear, I don't have a short answer. But I have to be short, otherwise, I don't want to talk to you so, too too much. Um, no, the one thing is perhaps on a, on a very general level, what one should say, uh, and maybe I should also say this because the book, the the reception of the book was rather to say, okay, this is a hardcore economic argument. But I would say, well. It does. I think, in my view, it doesn't make so much sense to play out the either the cultural or the economic and saying, okay, it's either or. That that is probably not a very smart way of 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 of, of approaching the issue. Um, and so, I so maybe that's a very general statement. So. In a way, this work logic argument does exactly that because they say, okay, we have something economically going on and that translates into certain attitudes and then the attitudes translate into certain electoral behavior. Uh, that's so. Of course, that's a very sophisticated explanation. Um, again, uh, it's a little bit over-determined because people like Hans-Peter Krise, they say, okay, we have economic, economic competition, globalization. Then we have political competition, 
Europeanization, so the the loss of the of the nation state as a as a as a as a relevant entity where decisions are made, and and then also the loss of responsiveness and and represent, democratic representation, and then we have cultural competition. That's migration. So people are obsessed. So first of all, first of all, I would say, well, migration is not only cultural competition. Migration is more. Uh, from from the economics of migration, we, we know that it has redistributed consequences and, and, and qu quite substantial. So that is already, I think, a, a strange way of, of seeing that. But then the, 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 this, this notion of saying, okay, but then the economic competition also leads to populist vote, leads then to the, to the prediction that the losers of that competition would vote populist. So then that's explicit, explicit with Hans-Peter Krisi saying, yeah, it's, it's, not the, it's not the skilled workers working in the exposed sector, but it's, it's the unskilled. Um, and, 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 but that's, that's exactly not true. That's not what we see. It's rather this, so it's rather the Facharbeiter, so to speak. And it's, and it's in the core region where they, where they are in the middle of the globalization phenomenon. They, they vote populist, so to speak. So IG Metall members vote for 16% pop, uh, AfD. The, the, the Bundesweite, the, the average, the nationwide is 12. So, so I, I would say, yes, there is this economic um, linkage. And this linkage, of course, leads to, to attitudes. We can show that if, if your insecurity rises, you, you have a higher tendency to vote populist, But there's also an indirect channel. You become more critical. You lose your trust in the political institutions and you become more critical of immigration. So you have a direct effect and then you have two indirect effects. And, and, so, and then if you measure, of course, only attitudes, you would only say, okay, it's the attitudes. But that these attitudes driven, themselves are driven by, by economic insecurity then usually gets, is, not, is not really seen. So, so that, that is kind of not a very systematic answer to to some of the points you raised. No? But, but first of all, it's not really helpful to have this kind of dichotomy uh, saying it's either culture or it's or either economy. And then I would say, yes, this working logic argument saying, okay, it's certain groups because they have certain working logics I, I translate this, you know, we have either a worker in a plant working on, on a, I don't know, on a, yeah, on, on a, how do you, assembly line and doing stupid things and then he, he mainly he gets stupid. Or we have the socioeconomic professionals who are social cultural professionals working in the service sector having to do with people and then, then they are more open. So that, that's the kind of trivial and slightly ironic version of that, of that story and, and that I wouldn't that I wouldn't buy, that, that I... Thank you. So with this, I would like to open the, the stage for the discussion with the public. Now, I have a look at the time. We don't have too much time. So I would ask, please, the audience, as well as our distinguished speaker, to be as briefly as possible, but still convey the main message. Ashley, please. So thanks, Philip, for this um, very illuminating talk. Um, my question, which, and I'm not certain whether it is a criticism or a friendly reformulation. So I was a bit surprised by the argument about uh, populism in Eastern Europe as fitting the theory. And the way that you um, formulated it, it was because the populist parties are pursuing, if you like, um, 
uh, social policies that would fit the model. Now, if we look at the populist parties of Northern Europe, most of them do the same thing and have been doing the same thing for a very long time. So I was surprised earlier when you put them uh, on the right in terms of the left-right uh, divide socioeconomically. So if we take the Danish People's Party, the Dutch uh, you know, Freedom Party, and uh, the Front National, they have all been welfare chauvinists in the same way. So how does that work into your argument? And is, is it really that uh, you said that left and right are blurring for populism, and haven't they been blurring on that dimension uh, for 15 or 20 years? That's a very good question. Um, in a way, yes, they have been blurring. Uh, I, I think that's true. Um, in a, I think, um, how, how do you say? Um, so Herbert Kitschel, when he wrote about these parties in the 1990s, he had this, you know this probably much better than I, he had this notion of the winning formula and saying, okay, what, what the winning formula for this new type of parties really is, is to be social, social, social culturally conservative and socioeconomically uh, um, neoliberal, so to speak. And if we look at parties like the early Fidesz, uh, if we look at parties like the Swiss um, SVP, even in a way, if we look at the early AfD, this kind of order liberal professoren, professoren partei, which was against the Euro rescue policy of Merkel, even the early PVV Wilders, they, they started rather as neo as, as right 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 so more more in the traditional sense and, uh, and and i think the argument here is to say okay what their main clientele early on was was rather it was not workers it was rather small business owners petite bourgeoisie this kind of people so this, so some of these people some of these parties started as tax revolt parties smaller state less taxation and so on and so on so so here so that was the observation by by Kitchell, i think for the time completely correct um, but then, what? Uh, but since then, that has changed. Now we can talk about when exactly has that changed. Is it 15 years? Is it more recent? I think it's more or less more recent. But uh, you, you're, you're true. Uh, you're, you're, you're right. I think now we have the we have the strange movement into a quadrant which previously, at least in the West, was not occupied. It was occupied much earlier in the in the East because much earlier um, the combination of, of of restricting free market and of being of on and of of restricting free expression, if you want, so being both illiberal on the on the social cultural level, but then also being illiberal on the socio economic level. Which, in, in a way, then this was the avant garde. So the, the the eastern was the eastern were the avant garde, and and now we learned this also in the west. So in a way, you are right. Uh, there, my. But then the category, categorical scheme as such gets into trouble because you don't know anymore what is left, what is right. Um, but but it's a very fair point. Philip, uh, Patricia Springborg from the Centre for British Studies at the Humboldt. I found your uh, analysis persuasive, but 
I find a missing, it's like a syllogism with an undistributed middle. I find something missing in almost all of these analyses, even though I'm not a specialist. And that is the basic demographic fundamentals about which no one speaks because one's suspected of being a right winger if you speak about them even. And that is that, for instance, I had to give a talk to uh, migrants in in Napoli at Federico Secundo University. And I talked about these things with them. Um, in the 1950s, almost in all Western countries, north and south, essentially, there were 16.5 people working for every person on benefits. There are now, these United Nations, World Bank, OECD figures, there are now 2.7. When people, those insiders in the north who are now rebelling, it's a gigantic rebellion, populism. They look at their pay packets and they say, how far can this go? At the same time, there are six countries who, according to demographic predictions, will double their populations by 2050. Five of them are African and they're the poorest. Nigeria, Egypt, Congo, Ethiopia and Tanzania. The sixth country is Indonesia. People are not stupid. This is a rebellion because they see no light at the end of the tunnel. They realize they will be, they're already taxed to death. Where does, do things go from now? My name is Stefan Dion. I am the Prime Minister's Trudeau Special Envoy for Europe and the Ambassador in Germany. And uh, I'm, I have one of my mandates to try to understand uh, the populist wave in Europe because in Canada we have concerns about that. Uh, thank you very much for, for your help. Uh, but I wonder if this concept of populism is not a bit, a bit cumbersome because it puts us in the obligation to put in the same bag Parties that are strongly against xenophobia and parties that are campaigning on xenophobia. Let's say La France Insoumise and, and, uh, and Le Front National and, and well, the same in, in Italy and the same in, in Spain and so on. So if I have to explain the left-wing part of it, well, in countries where you have an employment rate of more than 50% for the youth year after year after year, they tried the center-left, they tried the center-right, and then the extremist left-wing parties, that is the fault of capitalism, of this elite disconnect from you, vote for me. That they receive some support is, is not surprising, it seems to me. Now, you have one million people almost who came in Germany, uh, all from Muslim countries, all male, uh, out of control for the government, the government overwhelmed. That right-wing people said, well, we'll build a wall against that, vote for me. I'm not surprised by that. And the wave goes as far as Finland and, and Sweden. I expect that. And if you look at Spain, yes, they did not have this kind of parties before, but the Socialist Party welcomed a lot of people. It's been very generous to welcome people from, from Africa. And then Vox comes. As long as the immigration was coming from South America, it was okay. But coming from Africa, some people are afraid of it because they feel that it's out of control. So to me, this is not so much difficult to explain if we try to explain it outside the paradigm of populism that put us in the obligation to put in the same bags parties that have little in common. Well, thanks a lot. Um, 
Well, we, we can talk a lot uh, long about whether they have something in common, yes or no. Um, th that literature starts from the assumption that they do and, 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 and they describe what they think they do share. Uh, as I said, it's mainly the, the so to speak, the anti-establishment rhetoric, the the uh, the, the anti-pluralism, uh, and the, also the kind of it can also be a kind of left-wing nativism, of course, which is also existing. Um, so you say, okay, it's this or what you tell us here is not very surprising. Uh, that's that's completely fair as a statement. Um, we could, of course, talk a little bit about the Canada. U.S. difference. Why don't we have right-wing populism in Canada? We have across the border, we have Trump. Uh, north, of, north of the border, we have Justin Trudeau. That's... Explanation. That's because we don't have Mexico as a... In Canada, immigration is under control. Well, exactly. And then here we are. Here we are. So that's exact... So in a way, it's a kind of rephrasing what I said. Whenever we have migration uh, as... as as a, as a not under control, as you say, uh, we get a right wing populist backlash against that. That's exactly what I said. Um, and whenever we have uh, uh, migration not as a problem, whatever the reason is, um, we can talk about that. Then, uh, then, then we will rather get a left left populist um, response. So that's exactly. So, but still, if you, for instance, see that uh, well, the, mi the 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 migration flows. They, they, they came from the south. So it's not in a way you couldn't say, see, say, well, Greece wasn't affected, or Italy wasn't affected, or Spain wasn't affected. Spain wasn't affected for a very long time. But then that's exactly fitting the pattern. If we, if at least in the German debate, if we say, okay, we have, so to speak, we have either tolerant people or intolerant people. We have either open-minded, or, or, or chauvinist, nationalist, racist, xenophobic. So if that's, if that's how we color the debate, then I think we, we, we are not able uh, to explain what we see. But what, when, we, when we see that, um, um, first of all, um, these countries were massively affected in, in, a, in a first direct sense, of course, by migration. So one could say, why don't we see, uh, why don't we see right-wing populist backlash? Uh, then one would say, okay, either it's not, a, it's not a distributive issue. Either the migrants in southern Europe, uh, Italy, are integrated into the informal market, in the black market, they work on the vineyards, they, they pick t tomatoes, or they are in the really, in the, they, they deal drugs. And, uh, and, 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 and the female thing, it's, of course, prostitution is, is, a, is a big issue. Um, so either they integrate into the informal economy or they move up north. So, so by the... And and then part of the explanation, just I would fully agree. Part of the explanation was if we have then the the, the migration crisis 2015, and if uh, after the deal with Erdogan and so on and so on, uh, with border control, secondary migration is stronger under control after 2015 as it has been in 2015 or early 2016, then migration of course gets also problematic. For instance, for northern Italy, then that. That fuels the, the, the Lega discourse. And then when Lega uh, managed, after the Partito Democratico had already managed to, to, to reduce the inflow of, of refugees across the sea, when then more or less Lega com completely closed the harbors, we see the shift to Spain and then we see Vox.
So and you could say I'm not surprised, but in, in you, you still need an explanatory framework for that. Um, and, and that's what I try to propose. There was a question in the back. There, the lady in... Thank you. I have two questions and I do it very short. So first one is, uh, how do you touch your results to uh, the literature on varieties of capitalism? You have uh, this uh, variable related to the structure of the economy uh, with export-oriented economies or not export-oriented economies, but what about uh, the way economies are organized and the role of the state uh, in your explanation? So. Uh, Uh, does it matter what kind of capitalism we have in one country or not? And the second question is, uh, the East is not homogeneous. Uh, it consists at least uh, of two groups, one with post-communist uh, past and another not. So uh, you have this prediction on leftist uh, governments and populist in the East. Uh, it's not completely... Valid, I would say, looking at Poland, um, uh, for for these countries, does it have something to do with this communist uh, legacy? Okay, thank, thanks a lot. Both both highly, um, high, yeah, very very good points. Um, very briefly on the first point, um, well, for me, the kind of differences between these political economies very very much informed by the varieties of capitalism framework is is simply yeah, so to speak a, a grouping device so i can so i i don't have an own variable where or or or, or a cluster of variables where i would say okay on on that dimension uh, we have this this kind of variance what what i really simply do is that taking this literature mainly for granted saying okay we know that they describe the functioning of these um, uh, political economies very very helpfully and very fruitfully and so that helps me re helps me only for clustering them And seeing, saying, okay, yes, we have a kind of Scandinavian political economy. So this is a mixture between Jesping Andersen and Soskes uh, Hall, so to speak. It's not only coordinated versus non-coordinated. It's also saying, okay, no, we have a northern economy, we have a continental one, we have a southern one, we have, a, we have an Anglo-Saxon one. I think I can take the northern together because they, on, on the dimension which are relevant here, uh, export orientation or, or, or being fine with, with economic globalization but having problems with, with migration, uh, I can take them as one, one, one country group. And that, that's simply how... The, the varieties of frame, uh, capitalism framework comes comes into play. So I don't have an own measurement for that. I simply say, okay, we know that this is extremely helpful. I will use that. Post-communism versus yeah, or, or the East is more heterogeneous than I suggested. Absolutely, absolutely fair point. Yes. I so I just wanted to say so so much of the surprise, much of the non non-expected. Uh, thing at least in if we, if we follow my my arguments uh, that that we don't see the as a, a purely left wing populist response but rather quite to the contrary that we perceive the response in the east really as a as a strong right wing one uh, th that was mainly saying okay th this comes from the communist legacy and the communist legacy is one which combines 
socio-economic liberalism with socio-cultural liberalism, and that's why the, 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 the party system in the East, in most of these countries, they, they are structured differently, not as we, we in the West usually perceive them, left, left, right, right, but, but this, uh, this diagonal where, where we combine uh, socio-economic left with a social-cultural right and where we have a group where, where they are open, pro-globalization, but they are, so they are economically rather liberal, um, but also like civic platform um, and, and so on, but, but rather also uh, economically, uh, then on the social-cultural dimension, of course, open uh, to all these Western values, pro-Europe, but on an economic dimension, um, quite liberal, so to speak. So that's the communist legacy. Thank you so much for this uh, super interesting talk. Um, I have a very quick question which relates to um, like some of the empirical results you presented and the qualification you did of uh, some of Hans-Peter Griese's work. Um, he also finds, um, among others, that like Ireland behaves very different from the rest of uh, northern and continental Europe. And I was wondering whether you actually replicate his findings or like what your your results uh, suggest with regard to, um, well, the case of Ireland. Thanks. Uh, I don't know whether I recall now in a second what Hans-Peter Krisi wrote on Ireland. <laughs> so, um, so I'm not completely sure whether my view on that differs from his or not. Uh, very shortly, I would say, okay, Ireland is, of course, a case which was severely affected by the euro crisis. That, that's what we know. Um, so this is the kind of non-Southern country which which really got into deep troubles after 2008-9. Um, so at the same time, in a way, a little bit like Canada migration is not a problem um, quite to the contrary uh, one of the way of adjusting in Ireland economically is uh, that people move move to Britain move to the US move to Canada maybe um, so in the framework one would say okay we would expect a left-wing response of course the British the Irish party system, uh, electoral system is a quite is a, with this alternative vote is is, is, is is coming in as a complication but if we look at the Sinn Féin uh, results after the after the crisis and, and Sinn Féin at the same time winning but also radicalizing on the economic situ uh, dimension uh, I would say yes that, 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 that fits the picture Okay, thank you um, I understand that your data is coming primarily from Europe, but I was wondering whether you can apply your framework on the election of Jair Bolsonaro last year in Brazil as well. Because when you look at the election of Bolsonaro, neither globalization nor uh, like refugees played a role, but like a, a, certain, a third factor, which is uh, corruption, like the Odebrecht, Odebrecht scandal and um, Petrobras. So can you, is it possible to actually extend your framework uh, with uh, like corruption, the element of corruption? Because I think it plays a major role as well. Yeah. So yeah, I would like to thank you, uh, Professor. And to pose a question about a point that has not been touched and which surprised me because I think that is a huge dimension of populism, which is the communicational dimension. <laughs> which to me reconfirms that um, 
the populist politics also uh, uses that uh, dimension to um, to leverage on the cultural side and to influence uh, what's perceived as a crisis, what's perceived as a problem, whether it is migration or the movement of capital. No, these these are two excellent sets of, of questions. Um, uh, one, wonderful, and, and I'm completely uh, unable to answer them adequately in, in the remaining time. Um, st starting with Brazil or Bolsonaro, uh, I, I more the more I the more I am working on this topic, the more I get convinced that we should make a differentiation between presidentialism and parliamentarism. Uh, parliamentarism. Um, since I think that presidential systems are much more, how do you say, um, uh, what, what, what would be the right word, uh, much more uh, easily or infected by the by 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 populism, so to speak. So the presidential systems, as such, are already um, providing a high personalistic way of politics, so to speak. So, and I think if we look at people like Peron, um, it's I think I think not so surprising that if we look a little bit longer back to the in the Latin American history, we would see a longer historical track of charismatic leadership, weak parties, and then corruption, of course. I, I, we know that this is in Brazil. Brazil is, is linked to that. If you have a very fragmented party system um, with a lot of local fiefdoms and you have territorial representation in the parties and then the president uh, and, and Lula had to hold his majorities, he had to hold that together with the, with money of, with the Petrobras money. So that, that is a that is a inherent linkage of of how politics have to be done in the in that kind of it's not a personal defect it's it's a way how you have to do it uh, and it, of course that really then interlinks with uh, uh, with oil price developments it's like with Chavez also you know you can do it if the oil price goes up so to speak then you have the money to 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 feed the beast so to speak and if the oil price goes down then then you get into big trouble uh, so so i would say may, my argument would rather first apply to uh, to um, to parliamentary systems with with relatively strong party systems and the presidential ones, if we talk about Putin, Erdogan, Duterte, Bolsonaro, and so on, that, that, that has a different dynamic. And 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 I, I think corruption maybe comes more systematic into play in the uh, in the presidential systems than uh, than in the parliamentary ones. Communication, extreme important point. Yes, no doubt, this is true. So we, we see a kind of secular change how politics is done. We see a kind of secular change uh, in the sense of the loss of importance of parties as an, as an organization. You can, win, you can win an election with a Twitter account. That's possible by now. Um, Gerd Wilders, is, he has a party, the PVV, Partei von der Freiheit, and, and this party has one member, himself. So all you need is a Twitter account, publicity, and 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 the and the and the how do you say the the ability to trigger the public all the time. And and as we know, Trump could do this. So we see the the kind of environment in which politics is done today has changed tremendously. And this is a kind of opportunity structure 
uh, on which this kind of new phenomenon grow. Absolutely, no, no doubt about that. And I haven't talked about that, first of all, because I'm not really doing media and communication. I'm doing political economy, but that this is a kind of systematic background condition for this is, is, is completely true. Still, if that's true, we would still have to explain variants because it's true everywhere. It's also true in India. Uh, the digitalization of the Indian democracy is, is unbelievable, but, but you then would still need to explain why, why left here, why right there, why no populism here. So, thanks a lot for your attention and for the very good discussion. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herity-school.org.